thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's edition of God, Law, and Liberty. And I believe today's episode is going to be a groundbreaker for many, even as really it was in my preparations for today's episode. But I do think it's terribly important in the context of the cultural conversation taking place about human sexuality, transgenderism, and laws addressing those topics. And now I am going to follow up on our topic from last week's episode, though, but not in the way I had anticipated. For those who didn't get a chance to listen or maybe just need a refresher, you'll remember that I talked about a statement by avowed atheist renowned scientist Richard Dawkins that science is clear that there are only two biological sexes and that talk of gender identity as something different from or not associated with biological sex was errant nonsense. But I also pointed out that I'd written a commentary two Fridays ago, the Friday before Good Friday, I guess, uh, about Franklin Graham's response to Dawkins saying that he agreed 100% with Dawkins. And I wasn't so much speaking to agreeing with him that there are two sexes, but to what Graham added to that agreement, uh, which was this statement. Quote, science reflects what the Bible clearly says. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now that's from Genesis 26. And Graham added, that's it. I appreciated him taking a stand for this truth. Now we can quibble over whether the truth is that we're male and female or that, as I took it, the truth about the image of God is that we're male and female. Now that that may sound like heresy, to draw some kind of distinction there, but but bear with me, because that's what I began to think about and do some deep study and research on over the last week. Now, you'll recall that I mentioned in last week's episode that I'd gotten some feedback saying I shouldn't be quibbling with Graham, that we were in a time when Christians needed unity, and I was just a bad person for quibbling. And I had others that talked in a similar vein about the importance of creating alliances where we can, even though we may disagree on other fundamental aspects of the truth about man other than biological sexes. And so I was going to talk today about the importance of unity and alliances, but as I listened back to last week's episode, I just kept thinking, something's not clear in my own thinking here or the way I'm expressing it about the image of God that's important and fundamental, and I'm afraid it's getting lost in the conversation. And I was thinking back specifically to Matt Walsh's documentary, movie, whatever you call them, docudrama, What is Woman?, where he interviewed several intellectuals about the question, what is a woman, and they all seemed to be confounded and flummoxed by it, and essentially he pointed to his wife and said, well, there's your answer. And what I was trying to say in my commentary, 
and I want to further elucidate today is that we cannot reduce the image of God or speak of the image of God as being reduced to matters of mere biology. And I'm going to go even further than that today. So don't tune me out. Listen to the whole broadcast because I'm going to explain it. But we may be creating a problem when we make male and female so central to the image of God. Now, I know, again, that sounds like heresy to some people, but, but bear with me. I'm, I'm going to turn today to some biblical scholars and theologians that I think you'll respect who help us think more clearly about the relationship of the body to the image of God. And here's the general danger, I think, that we're at risk of embracing the, the pitfall that we have the potential to fall into, is if we're not careful with the emphasis we put on the body, we will fall into the denial of a right form, a correct form of dualism, and that will have disastrous effects. Now, I confess, I have generally thought of dualism as bad. And it's not wrong to be suspicious of dualisms, but I had a biblical scholar friend of mine, Cal Beisner, with the Cornwall Alliance, a great organization, if you've not ever checked into them on matters of earth stewardship. I had written to him uh, about some dualisms uh, that I were, was incorporating into a seminar and a book I've written on transgenderism. And this is what he wrote back. The sacred secular dualism is wrong. And of course that's rampant in the church today where you know, we don't want to talk about politics, we don't want to talk about law, we don't want to talk about government. You know, th that's profane. You know, we don't want to be involved in any form of art or entertainment because all those are profane and 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 while we may need to draw boundaries particularly unique to each of us in our own proclivities to sin, the whole concept of a dualism between the sacred and the secular is wrong because creation is revealing the glory of God. But he goes on. The creator-creation dualism is true. Now, I had not really thought of the creator-creation distinction as a dualism, but it is in the sense that God is distinct and separate between that which he created. Creation is not an emanation from God's being containing any essential divinity to it. And then he adds, and the spirit-matter dualism is true. It's only the first one, he says, the sacred secular, that we want to reject. Now that's what he wrote, but let me, let me explain to you what I, I think he's saying here, and if I'm wrong, then, you know, my bad, not, not Cal's, but there is a dualism we must retain pertaining to our bodies that, when rightly understood, prohibits us from doing what I expressed concern about in my commentary and in last week's podcast, confusing our bodies with the image of God, or allowing the distinction between the spiritual man and the man of dust or earth 
our bodies, to be blurred. We see that distinction in 1 Corinthians 15. And I think some of that's starting to happen today in response to what's going on with homosexuality and transgenderism. So today, I want to flesh out, pun intended, this biblically sound dualism between spirit and matter as it relates to the image of God and biological distinctions. Now to help us think through this, I'm going to use Herman Bovick's chapter dedicated to the image of God in his Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 2, and Calvin's commentary on Genesis 1.26, the verse of Scripture that Mr. Graham quoted. Now, why I turned to uh, Bavik and then to Calvin was because as I thought further about the image of God and the sexes, I remembered that Bavik did not include a discussion of male and female in his chapter dedicated to discussing the image of God. And as I read the chapter again, I realized that the whole history of the theological reflection on the image of God did not include male and female as essential to the nature of human beings that constitutes the image of God. The body, yes, but not male and female in particular. So let me read the really first part of what Bavink wrote, and I know I've read it before, but I, I want to take it in a bit of a different direction this time than the way I've used it in the past. In the past, what I'm getting ready to read you, I have used to talk about why the incarnation makes sense and is not illogical. I've used it to talk about the relationship of Christ to creation generally and to human beings in general, but not really in terms of the image of God specifically, and that's what I want us to look at today. So this is what Bavik wrote, and the heading I think is very important to this section. The heading is the whole person as the image of God. And as it begins, he makes it very clear that God himself, the entire deity, is the archetype of man. Now, when I read that this past week, I stopped and I thought, well, no, wait a minute, that's interesting because I think of Jesus and Adam and both being man and I think of Adam being the type of who Christ was, but it doesn't say we're made in the image of Christ. It says we're made in the image of God. So Bavik is pointing out here that it's the entire deity, not just Jesus Christ, that's the archetype of man. And if you'll recall in previous episodes, when we begin to elevate one person of the Trinity above another or to subordinate one person of the Trinity to the others, we wind up in heresy. And that's, that's where our thinking goes if we too much equate Adam with Jesus Christ. Because the image of God is not just Jesus Christ. 
That's an elevation of Christ and a subordination of the Father and the Son. So as I thought about that statement, I wrote down this question. If God is a spirit and has no corporal existence, how do male and female fit into the image of God? Now, as I mentioned, throughout the whole rest of this chapter, Bobak never mentions male and female. And I want us to look at why. Now, I'm going to take this first statement that Bobak makes, and I'm going to share with you what John Calvin wrote in his commentary in Genesis on verse 26, the verse that Graham quoted. Here's what he wrote. For though the divine glory is displayed in man's outward appearance, it cannot be doubted that the proper seat of the image is in the soul. I do not deny, indeed, that external shape, insofar as it distinguishes and separates us from the lower animals, brings us nearer to God. But only let it be understood that the image of God, which is beheld and made conspicuous by these external marks, is spiritual. I think you may recall it was last week I mentioned, or maybe it was two weeks ago, that even the act of copulation is pointing to the glory of God and the union that's in the Trinity and the relationship specifically between the Father and the Son. The Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. Okay, And so that is pointing back to God. That, that God is good, he also made it pleasurable. But the object of those physical distinctions and the procreative act is not the subjective pleasure or the pleasure of the subject. It is the objective God and glorification of the objective God. And even in its pleasure, we are pointing back to God. So Calvin continues, extending the image of God indiscriminately. Now what he's saying here, without careful distinctions, in other words, to the body, as to the soul, confounds heaven with earth. I couldn't help but think there of the distinction that's again made in 1 Corinthians 15, that the first man is the natural man, the man of earth, the second is of heaven and is spiritual. Now, let me continue. Because Bobak does relate the image of God to the whole person, which would include our bodies. But let's notice how he goes about doing this. He said, Naturally, as the cosmos is an organism and reveals God's attributes more clearly in some than in other creatures, so also in man as an organism, the image of God comes out more clearly in one part than another. And then he adds this, more in the soul than in the body, more in the ethical virtues than in the physical powers. Now I'll go back again to what Calvin said in his commentary on Genesis 1.26. He said, man is 
among other creatures a certain preeminent specimen of divine wisdom, justice, and goodness, so that he is deservedly called by the ancients a world in miniature. You see, that's what, what Bavink was saying there. As he says, just as the cosmos is an organism, and parts of God's attributes are more clearly revealed in some things than others, we too are an organism, and some parts of us more clearly display the image of God than other parts. Now this is where it gets really, really important. He begins by saying, how is this made manifest? So this is, this is coming to the crux of the matter. He said, God is first of all demonstrable in the human soul. According to Genesis 2-7, man was formed from the dust of the earth by having the breath of life breathed into his nostrils and so becoming a living soul. Bobby continues, the breath of life is the principle of life. The living soul is the essence of man. Now we've been talking about what is a human being? What is a man? What is a woman? When we use this word is, we are talking about what is our essence? What is our true nature? And he says the first place the image of God is revealed is in the soul. Now I'll confess the concept of the soul has been for most of my life a cloudy one. At times I considered it the same as the spirit. At times I considered this, that, that we were tripart body, soul, and spirit. But what Bobbick says here was really, really helpful to me. He writes, man is spirit because he did not, like the animals, come forth from the earth, but had the breath of life breathed into him by God. He received his life principle from God. But man is a soul because from the very beginning, the spiritual component of him, unlike that of the angels, is adapted to and organized for a body and is bound to the body. And he goes on to explain in what ways. But you see what he's doing is he's saying we are not three things, but the soul is the way the spirit is encapsulated in the body that was designed for human beings. Let me read what he said again. Man is spirit because he did not, like the animals, come forth from the earth. But man is soul because from the very beginning, the spiritual component in him, unlike the angels who are not corporal material beings as we are, our spirit is adapted to and organized for a body and is bound to the body. He continues, the spirituality, invisibility, unity, simplicity, and immortality of the human soul are all features of the image of God. The image itself emerges in the fact that he has a spirit which from the beginning organized into a soul. And he puts the word there, psyche. 
from the Greek. So that's very interesting how he, he again here is drawing the distinction. The first thing that makes us like God is that we're spiritual beings and our spiritual being is encapsulated in a body, but the essence is the spiritual nature of man. He goes on and says this, belonging to the image of God in the second place are the human faculties. While the spirit is the principle and the soul the subject of life in man, the heart is the organ of man's life. He goes on to talk about not only the heart, but also the mind and the will. Those are part of the image of God. Third, he says, the image of God manifests itself in the virtues of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with which humanity was created from the start. Bavik then says, in the fourth place, now this is the important part right here to the body, the human body belongs intricately to the image of God. And here's the important point. A philosophy that either does not know or rejects divine revelation always lapses into empiricism or rationalism, materialism or spiritualism. Those are the pagan views of it, but scripture reconciles the two. Man has a spirit, pneuma, he says, but that spirit is psychically organized and must, by virtue of its nature, inhabit a body. It is of the essence of humanity to be corporal and sentient, he continues. Hence, man's body is first, if not temporally, then logically, formed from the dust of the earth, and then the breath of life is breathed into him. He's called Adam after the ground from which he was formed. He's dust. It's called dust. The body is not a prison, but a marvelous piece of art from the hand of Almighty God, and just as constitutive for the essence of humanity as the soul. But he draws a distinction here. He says, the one and same life that flows through the body, the, the life that is us, operates and manifests itself in every organ in a manner particular to that organ. Now that goes back to what he had said earlier about the image of God is reflected in all things in the cosmos as an organism, but in some parts more specifically so than in others. And that's what he's getting ready to say here. Now this body, which is so intimately bound up with the soul, also belongs to the image of God. But he notes here what I said a few moments ago, but God, after all, is a spirit and has no body. The human body is a part of the image of God in its organization as instrument of the soul, in its formal perfection, not in its material substance as flesh. The spirit of man is designed for the body as its manifestation. From the beginning, creation was so arranged and human nature was immediately so created that it was amenable to and fit 
for the most intimate indwelling of God. So we see something here really, really important. The human is not the divine self, but is nevertheless a finite creaturely impression of the divine. All that is in God, listen to what he includes here, his spiritual essence, his virtues and perfections, his eminent self-distinctions, his self-communication and self-revelation in creation finds its admittedly finite and limited analogy and likeness in humanity. In order to be the image of God, therefore, man had to be a recapitulation of the whole of nature. Because nature itself, this is me now speaking, is revealing the glory of God. And so if there was not this spiritual and material element that man is, then man would not be the theater of the cosmos writ small, as Calvin said. It would not really reflect the, the image of God in its fullness. But now here's, here's the important part about the body. Because the body is not unimportant, but its importance has to be put in a proper context when it comes to its relationship to the image of God. And so here's what Bavink says. The creation of humankind in God's image, see, a woman bears the image of God too, was only completed on the sixth day when God created both man and woman in union with each other. So if we're not careful, if we make sex the thing that is the image of God, we don't have in Adam an image of God. Something's lacking in that sense. Or in woman, something would be lacking in that sense, assuming, let's say, she had been created first. And what Bavink is saying here is that each bears the image of God, but for the image of God to be completed, there had to be man and woman for it to be given a fuller expression. So he puts this discussion of male and female in his section dealing with human destiny in community because God is communal. There are three persons. They, they are constantly, forever, infinitely and internally in communion, in love. And so God created the male and the female. And he caused them to reproduce. And this is, this is what's cool to me. Because, as he said, the image of God is too rich to be expressed in only a man or a woman or a man and a woman together. But only the whole of humanity is to fully develop the image of God, his children, his offspring. It can only be somewhat unfolded, speaking here about the image of God, in its depth and riches in a humanity counting billions of members. Just as the traces of God are spread over many, many works in both space and time, so also the image of God can only be displayed in all its dimensions and characteristic features in a humanity whose members exist both successively, one after the other, and contemporaneously 
side by side. Just as the cosmos is a unity, cosmos being everything, including man, and receives its head and master in humankind, and just as the traces of God are scattered throughout the entire world, are bundled and raised up into the image of God of humankind, so also that humanity, in turn, is to be conceived as an organism that precisely as such is finally and the only fully developed image of God. Not a heap of souls on a tract of land, not as a loose aggregate of individuals, but as having been created out of one blood, as one household, and one family, humanity is the image and likeness of God. Well, I hope you found this helpful. I found in my own experience that I often use Bible words and I've not plumbed the depths or the meaning or the beauty of them. And we too often, I think, take things that are glorious and we take one aspect of them and we have them swallow up the whole and we only get a small part of the glory that's resident in the larger thing. I guess that's what I'm trying to caution us about here, is man and woman are incredible. Together they do complete an aspect of the image of God, but we dare not let the image of God be reduced to that alone because it makes the glory of God small. Well, I hope you'll join me next week as we look at why it is that unity and alliances seem so important in our day. And I hope you'll join me for next week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.factennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.